Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for George Washington's Vine and Fig Tree, Micah 4-4, and the Religious Character of the American Republic. We are honored to be co-hosting today's program with Temple High in Phoenix and BMHBJ in Denver. And I'd love to pass it over to Rabbi Chaitovsky to introduce today's guest speaker. Thank you, everyone. Good afternoon. And um, we're in for Rio treat today, Dr. Tugendhoff. As an expert in history and philosophy, studied at University of Chicago, as well as the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the Sorbonne. He received a doctorate in Bible and ancient Near Eastern studies from NYU and has taught broadly within the humanities on four continents and has become a staunch advocate of traditional liberal education as a corrective to premature professionalization academic hyper-specialization, and political polarization. He's written a number of books, including his most recent, The Idols of Isis, From Assyria to the Internet, is a philosophical meditation on the political power of images and the significance of their destruction. He has served since 2021 as the History Department Chair and Director of Interdisciplinary Programs at the Ramaz School, in New York City, a flagship modern Orthodox high school and, and lower school than high school um, uh, in, in our country. And he's going to talk today um, about Micah, um, an image that was very dear to the heart of George Washington, very dear to us. And if you're concerned about a vision for society, you might be intrigued and enlightened by the presentation today. Doctor. Thank you very much, uh, Rabbi. Thank you, Alex, for uh, this invitation. Um, I'm very glad to be here uh, at the Valley Beit Midrash. Um, I am currently coming to you from Leiden in the Netherlands, just to let you know, but uh, um, it's it's my pleasure to join all of you. So thank you for the invitation. Washington's famous farewell address. That's actually one of, uh, one of the places that the, that he does not quote this line, um, but uh, otherwise it was, um, you know, arguably his, it was his favorite uh, scriptural verse and he uh, quotes it more than four uh, dozen times in, uh, in his letters. Um, and so just to look at the, the full, um, Passage four, four verses for Mika to give the context, right? But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow onto it. And many nations shall come, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. Now, there's there's a lot that can be said about 
this passage, not only uh, the, the line at the end, it is a prophetic vision of the last days, right? Or of, of uh, the time to come, some type of uh, messianic time. There are interesting uh, things that are relevant to some of the themes that will come up today, though I won't necessarily speak to them directly, but we can maybe talk about them after after the presentation about uh, many nations coming together. And as we'll see also the image of the swords being um, beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks um, is particularly relevant for the moment in in history that we're going to be talking about. Now, I mentioned that Washington quotes this line um, or you know, alludes to this image more than four dozen times in his letters. And most of the occurrences uh, take place during two periods of his life um, when he uh, took a step back from public life. Um, this letter from 1784, right, is the period when he uh, gives up his commission um, as, as head of the army and he returns to Mount Vernon. And then the other period is after he, just connected to the song we just saw, after he returns uh, and, and does not run for uh, president after a second term. Um, so this is letter uh, to the Marquis de Lafayette from 1 February, 1784. Washington writes, at length, my dear Marquis, I am become a private citizen on the banks of the Potomac and under the shadow of my own vine and my own fig tree, free from the bustle of a camp and the busy scenes of public life, I am solacing myself with those tranquil enjoyments of which the soldier who is ever in pursuit of fame and the courtier who is always watching the countenance of his prince can have very little conception. And so here we can see the, the image of, of the vine and fig tree is being used as an image of a private life, right? Um, Washington here is building off of the classical distinction between a public life, the life of the statesman or the general, the soldier, um, and a private life. And, he's, and he uses the vine and fig tree image to describe his retreat from public life, right? And his, and his time as a private citizen, finally, uh, at Mount Vernon. And that indeed is, is the way that the image is used most of the time in his writing, but not always. Probably the most famous usage uh, of the image, and um, certainly among uh, those who are interested in the history of Jews in America and Washington's relationship to Jews is in a letter, a very famous letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, uh, which Washington wrote uh, 18th of August, 1790. Um, and as you'll see, as you see down in the red, uh, he quotes, I'll read the whole, uh, this is not the whole letter, but a um, significant portion of it because some of these themes will return and it's, it's worth reading. It's also just important in its own right. Washington writes, the citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy. 
a policy worthy of imitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. And so we see here quite a different use than the use that he uh, um, applies the, the phrase in the letter to uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, right? Here, it is a particularly political usage of the, of the phrase that the character, the political character of the United States is going to be one um, or, and should be one where everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree. Um, and importantly, the that Jews will be included um, in that group who will benefit from that situation. Now, Washington, of course, is not the first to use this phrase in a political meaning. Arguably, of course, the the original sense itself with its messianic vision is um, uh, somehow political, uh, though we can get into some of the fine tune, fine details there of, of, of whether that term is appropriate. But within the American context, it's interesting to look at some of uh, the predecessors who use this phrase in, um, in the rhetoric of the time. Uh, on the 8th of May, 1778, um, the Congress of the United States uh, published this address to the inhabitants of the United States of America. Um, this is in the middle of the war at a time when things were not going particularly well uh, for the for the United States. And much of the letter, uh, much, much of, of this text is aimed at basically scaring Americans uh, out of the contemplating the idea of surrender to the British. Um, and, it's, and it's in that context that uh, the text reads, trust not to appearances of peace and security. Be assured that unless you persevere, you will be exposed to every species of barbarity. But if you exert the means of defense, which God and nature have given you, the time will soon arrive when every man shall sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Right? And so we see here the image is being used specifically for that time uh, that comes after the war and after success in the war, that uh, and the country uh, that emerges should be a, a country that is characterized by this image. Um, and course, the transition from war to peace, right, also uh, one can connect to the 
um, the image of the of the beating uh, swords into plowshares, which uh, Micah uh, uses in tandem with the with the vine and fig tree. And so the question then becomes: When when does this period arrive, if it arrives at all, in this sermon on the occasion of the commencement of the New Hampshire Constitution? Uh, Samuel, Samuel McClintock, uh, Clinton, uh, Reverend Samuel McClintock states, by this revolution, we are not only delivered from the calamities of a long, expensive and bloody war, but may now sit quietly under our own vine and fig tree without any to make us afraid. And every man is left at full liberty to pursue the means of opulence and happiness without the danger of being deprived of the fruits of his industry by the hand of rapine and violence, which is ever the case of those who are either the subjects of arbitrary power or exposed to the ravages of war. Now, this text has to be understood. This, this text comes from the period of the Articles of Confederation and needs to be understood, as does the next text even more explicitly, um, in the question of whether or not uh, those Articles of of confederation uh, were sufficient for um, American governance. And as you can see here, right, there are those like McClintock who um, who claim right that the war is now over and that they now actively are living in um, a world in a situation characterized by the prophetic vision. Um, and so they can now enjoy that liberty, which has already um, arrived. Similarly, three years later, uh, Melanchthon Smith uh, calls himself a plebeian in this, uh, this text, evils under confederations exaggerated, constitution must be drastically revised before adoption. This is um, known as Anti-Federalist 85, right? And so, uh, and again, those of you familiar with Hamilton will be familiar with this, um, as well as just from American history, right? Uh, the, there was a large debate as to whether or not the constitution should be uh, ratified, accepted. And that debate ended up being sort of divided between these two groups, the so-called federalists, uh, most famously um, Jay Hamilton and Madison, who wrote uh, the letters that then came together as the federalists papers, um, these Federalist papers, right, arguing in favor of adoption of the new constitution, and then those who opposed the adoption of the constitution uh, being labeled the anti-federalists, okay? And um, here we have the voice of one of the anti-federalists. He writes, on this head, all the powers of rhetoric and arts of description are employed by the federalists to paint the condition of this country in the most hideous and frightful colors, right? That is that if one were to read the writings of the Federalists, they would say that the current situation uh, is uh, under the Articles of, of, of uh, Confederation are appalling, right? And, and cannot continue. Um, they're frightful and hideous. Uh, but Smith continues, but suffer me, my countrymen, to call your attention to a serious and sober estimate of the situation in which you are placed. What is your condition? Does not every man sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree 
having none to make him afraid? Does not everyone follow his calling without impediments and receive the reward of his well-earned industry? And so again, we can see how this prophetic image is used uh, as already applicable to the current situation, the situation after victory uh, in the Revolutionary War, uh, and the idea that at that point, Americans had achieved uh, a world that meets this uh, prophetic vision and nothing more uh, needed to be done uh, in order to achieve it. But then there are those who disagreed. And as it happened so often, right, they use the same image, but for different purpose. And so here is John Dickinson, who signed himself uh, his essay, Fabius, uh, in the essay, Observations on the Constitution Proposed by the Federal Convention. So one of the pro-Constitution uh, writings, this is from 17 April, 1788. Dickinson writes, each individual then must contribute such a share of his rights as is necessary for attaining that security that is essential to freedom. What does he lose by this submission? The power of doing injuries to others and the dread of suffering injuries from them. What does he gain by it? Protection against injuries, a capacity of enjoying his undelegated rights to the best advantage, a repeal of his fears and tranquility of mind, or in other words, that perfect liberty better described in the Holy Scriptures than anywhere else in these expressions, when every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make him afraid. All right. And so to Dickinson, the, the prophetic image remains the image that one wants for America, but it is not yet achieved. It's something that can be achieved in the future if the country is willing to undergo uh, the necessary, um, uh, the, 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 the necessary uh, submission to um, certain types of uh, government. Right, in, in, in this case, right, the, the Constitution. Um, in other words, that in order to gain true liberty, right, individuals will have to give up some of their uh, personal liberty or the liberty that then, and freedom that they understand. Um, but it's only by doing so that the larger civic uh, liberty um, that republicanism uh, aims for can be achieved and that the, you know, according to Dickinson, those uh, who claim that we currently already are there, we don't need to uh, submit to a stronger government, right, are um, not willing to recognize and, and, and make the sacrifices necessary for good government, good governance, and, um, and the life of perfect liberty that can emerge from it. If in the previous text from Dickinson, right, which takes place during the Federalist uh, debates, the debates on the Constitution, um, focuses on what the citizens need to be willing to undergo in order for a healthy uh, civic society to um, to emerge in America, and then that that America can take on the the image of the, that prophetic vision. Um, 
In this text, which is uh, quite a bit earlier, as you see, it's from 1747 by uh, the Boston preacher, Charles Chauncey. Uh, he, here he focuses on the ruler. Um, it is this in this text, civil magistrates must be just ruling in the fear of God, which he preached before the newly appointed governor of um, the uh, Massachusetts colony and the and the council members um, in 1747. And the whole text is about uh, the requirements of good governance and how a ruler uh, specifically should uh, behave as it it's. Um, it, the whole text is a commentary on uh, on a verse from to Samuel, uh, but at one moment in the text, uh, Chauncey writes: "The happiness of a people lies very much in their living peaceably among themselves and at quiet with their neighbors. For which rule? For which reason, rulers are bound in justice to use all prudent endeavors." that they may sit every man under his own vine and under his fig tree and have none to make them afraid. In order whereunto they should take care to prevent intestine jars and commotions in the government by giving no occasion for murmurings and complaints, or if any should unhappily arise by speedily removing the causes of them. Now, I want you to notice a subtle shift uh, in Chauncey's use of this phrase. Until now, following the usage of the prophet himself, the verb sit has always been used uh, in its intransitive sense. Here, however, Chauncey does something that which, which we can do in English, subtly shifts it so that the words sit here is used transitively, meaning that it is the job of the ruler to actively sit citizens under their vine and fig tree, right? That there is a role that rulers must play uh, in order to achieve this goal. Um, and it's with that in mind that I want us to turn back to George Washington and think about George Washington uh, in terms of what he, as president, uh, tried to accomplish, right? Or how he tried to accomplish this act of sitting every man under his own vine and fig tree, right? What did he think that he needed to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis citizens of the United States so that uh, this could be a uh, this image right for the United States could be accomplished because um, you know as as should be mentioned right uh, I'm sure most of you know Washington himself right was in favor of adopting the Constitution and so he did not believe like the anti federalists that um, the prophetic situation had been achieved um, nationally right in in its in its political use even if. Um, he could say that he personally had achieved it um, at Mount Vernon, right? But in its political usage, he was thinking of it as a future vision, not as something already accomplished. And so how did he do that? And specifically, how did he do it with respect to the the issue that, that seems to concern Chaucey here, uh, particularly, which is um, the 
this question of murmurings and complaints or, or divisions within the populace, right? Or um, the problem of sectarianism and the the, the rise of sects, which is uh, the one of one of the uh, principal concerns of these thinkers. So to do that, let's return to uh, our beginning, right? Um, and the farewell address that uh, George Washington um, circulated uh, before stepping down from office. And I want to focus here, um, we, could, we could think about how George Washington tried to accomplish uh, this in many, many different ways, right? How he tried to sit the American population under their fine and fig tree. Uh, but I want to focus specifically on the question of religion. Um, and in the farewell address, he has this to say about religion. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. Right, so what is, what is he saying? He's saying that um, in order to achieve political prosperity, right, uh, we need the indispensable supports of religion and morality. Um, and that no one who can claim to be a patriot, right, um, would ever uh, work to undermine religion and morality uh, within the within the civic community, right? Um, that any attempt to try to undermine this would be to act against patriotism, right? And that the politician, meaning the person who is just thinking about uh, practical politics, equally with the pious man. So it doesn't matter whether you're thinking from the, from the perspective of uh, practical politics or from the perspective of piety, Right, both of both types of man uh, respects and cherishes religion uh, in the population. Right, um, and by the way, I should mention here that there's been a lot written and a lot of speculation about whether Washington himself was pious, and if so, in what way, and what was his personal convictions and beliefs. Right, um, I'm not that. That's that's a worthwhile thing to be thinking to be concerned about but it's not my concern here in, in thinking about washington i'm more interested in thinking about him regardless of his personal beliefs um what as a politician he thought the role uh religion should play in uh in america and so then he continues and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle, right? And so it's possible that we can get morality with religion, perhaps. Maybe those who have a refined education can achieve that. But he says both reason and experience, right? If we actually just look around we have to come to the conclusion that uh, for national morality to prevail, 
right? Um, it can't prevail without uh, population partaking in uh, some religious principle, okay? Uh, what that religious principle is though, is um, left a little vague. And I think that that's in, in this sort of the closing point that I wanna get to is incredibly important because he does not say, for example, as many at the time uh, would very well have, have said, right? That it cannot prevail without Christian uh, morality or something uh, of that sort. And yet instead he says religious principle. Now to get at that question, I, I want to trouble things a little bit. So Washington here says that in order to have civic virtues, the civic virtues that um, are so indispensable for a republic, right? Um, realistically, one, one needs a population that has religion and therefore it's uh, politically prudent for the, for the government to uh, not only not try to undermine it, but even uh, Washington will go so far as to say to uh, nurture that religious uh, feeling um, in the population. But if the government gets involved in nurturing that uh, religion in the population, the chance that it raises the chances, uh, given the fact that different people disagree on uh, religion and they have irreconcilable differences of opinion about religion, right? If the government encourages religion, might not that encourage sectarianism? Might not that encourage strife? Precisely those things, right, that Chauncey is suggesting that a ruler has to um, try to suppress and bring uh, and, and, and uh, eradicate from the polity, uh, might supportive religion, might, might it not instead uh, bring about people caring so much about their religion that they are uh, at the throats of others who disagree with them within the polity. And so uh, with the last few minutes, I just wanna mention, and I'm not gonna be able to go into this, right? Um, one, one place where it seems that Washington um, had a strategy for dealing with this. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, one of the most famous, if not the most famous occurrences of the phrase uh, about the vine and fig tree appears in the letter, uh, the justly famed letter of Washington to, to the Hebrew congregation in Newport. But what's less known is that that letter was just one of many letters that George Washington wrote um, in this period upon becoming the first president of the United States to religious communities throughout the new uh, United States of America. So there were many letters that he wrote, and this is uh, a list of them, right? As you can see, to the German Lutherans of Philadelphia, to the bishops of the Methodist Episcopal Church, to the United Baptist Churches of Virginia, to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, to the German Reformed Congregations, to the Moravian Society for Propagating the Gospel, to the Society of Quakers, to the Congregational Ministers of New Haven, to the Presbyterian Ministers of Massachusetts and New Hampshire, to the Synod of the Dutch Reformed Church in North America, to Roman Catholics in America, to the Society of Free Quakers, to the Savannah, Georgia Hebrew Congregation, 
to the Convention of the Universal Church, to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, to the Hebrew congregations of Philadelphia, New York, Charleston, and Richmond, to the Congregational Church of Midway, Georgia, and to the members of the New Jerusalem Church of Baltimore. So as you can see, even just for Jewish history, uh, the letter to Newport is only one of three letters that Washington wrote in this period to Jewish communities in the United States. Washington didn't just choose to write these letters. In fact, all of these letters are responses that he received from these different communities upon his inauguration as the president. And this is a, a practice that was also common. Uh, it goes back to um, the, the pr practice in and uh, monarchies, and uh, it's a whole other topic, right? The, the question at this time of how to distinguish Washington as president from uh, from a monarch and such. But there's a practice, right, for religious communities to um, send letters upon the coronation, and so in this case, the inauguration, sometimes called the coronation of Washington, and Washington responded. Interestingly, when he responded, he often quoted pieces of the letters back to the congregation. What's interesting when one looks at these letters in detail and at the bottom of the page there and also on the source sheet that I uh, have circulated to you, I give you the um, the web address of uh, Mount Vernon uh, has a web page, a wonderful web page, which collects all of these letters and uh, includes all of the, the letters that Washington received and that he was uh, responding to. Right. And if you take them all in aggregate and start looking at what Washington is doing, you realize that he has a certain kind of method. That, first of all, with um, minority or marginalized communities, not just the Jewish community of the United States, but also in the sense Quakers and Catholics, he adopts a position that, through his language, tries to bring the community, those communities, uh, closer to the center and or become make them more included within uh, American life. Um, and there are a range of other things we could talk about uh, how he does that right but he, he tries to bring them uh, he tries to bring them closer to the center. while on the other hand, if you look at, for example, the letter letter to the Presbyterians, um, churches that were, more established in America and um, thought of themselves as uh, dominant and deserving of a certain kind of uh, respect that comes with that in America. You can see him, uh, by contrast, actually um, cutting them down somewhat, um, moderating them, and thereby also trying to bring them into a kind of more central middle position or position of equality between these different congregations. Um, an example of that, for example, is, is that whereas uh, when the Presbyterian Church uh, writes to Washington, they write explicitly of um, Christ uh, and Christians and Jesus, right? And when Washington replies, and remember, he has a tendency to quote the congregations back to themselves, he very, very uh it's it's you can one can see this right clearly that he he does not refer 
to uh, Christianity or Christ or Jesus. He cuts all of that out and uses far more ecumenical, more universal language to, to refer to the deity. Um, and he does this throughout, uh, uh, throughout. And so there really is this attempt to um, recognize the sectarianism in the United States, right? And Washington recognizes as his duty um, as president not to support some sects over others, but rather to find means to um, bring the marginalized into the center and to, and and, the, and those in the center, you know, in the center, bring them down so that there there creates a kind of uh, of equality uh, between the different sects, not homogeneity, right? There isn't divi division, as is the vision in Micah to bring it all the way back to the poet uh, to, to the to the prophet, right? If the vision of the prophet is that all nations will come to Jerusalem and recognize finally uh, the one true God, right? And give up their false gods. And therefore everyone comes together through a kind of unified religion. Um, here, Washington uh, is seeking a kind of unification, but not, not in the form of a homogenized religion in any, in any respect, right? But rather um, a complete sort of equality between uh, different congregations. I'm one minute over, but I will will stop there. Um, and I'm, I welcome any conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Tugendhoff. Yes, we'd love to open it up. Um, if anyone would like to ask a question or make a comment, please feel free to raise your hands um, and we can call on you and then you can unmute or um, you can also use the chat if you'd prefer. I, uh, I saw Rabbi Chetovsky and then Tikva. I'm just uh, just fascinated. What what prompted your interest? Where did this interest in Americana, George Washington, his love of the mica image? Where did that? What spurred that? Oh, that's a it's a good question. Um, I never really know where my interest in things uh, come from, to be to be honest. I have in recent years become more and more interested in the early modern period in, in general, not so much America that this is actually, um, so, and so those of you who, who know a lot more than this than I do, I'm sure saw plenty of faults in, in the presentation. Um, I'm, I'm new, this is a new project for me and I, I want to move into doing more uh, with Americana. But I, I've, I've been doing a lot with early modern political thought uh, and thinking and early modern thinking about religion and politics. And so that, that's one part of, of this for sure. I suppose, I mean, the, there is a thematic thing here, which is the, the image at, the, the, that I close with at the end or a prob problem that I that, uh, at the end. But, but I, I think I'm, I've been interested in a lot of my work in different ways, right, which is precisely how to how to live together without uh, a demand for perfection as one understands perfection, um, right? Uh, how, how to live somewhat in, 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 uh, will, willingly in, in, a, in a situation of incompleteness, right? Because um, in this period, right, each one of these sects, right, they, it's, it's really important as, as I mean, as it will still be the case today for, but it, they, they, they believe that right, it, they, they have it right. And they know, for, they know for sure how things are supposed to get done. Um, and so 
one could imagine that if you're going to have an ideal politics or want to strive for strive for you know you know the best politics possible, you would want it to have one proper uh, viewpoint on on religion and all things, right? And 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 I'm interested in precisely how one how 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 we can try to prevent avoid that, right? And and sort of live with not with with imperfection uh, and incompleteness. And so that that's why I guess why I, I become interested in in these uh, letters that, that Washington sends uh, that I mentioned at the end. Thank you. Uh, yes, Tikva? Yeah, I guess I was struck just right from the beginning. And I think you brought this out so well, Aaron, of I don't with seeing the song within the context of like this lecture. Um, even in the song, you hear both that he is the person who wants everyone to be under the, their own vine and fig tree, and he himself wants to be under the, his own vine and fig tree. And I love the way you brought out the different tensions between, or different, I guess, even comp, complementary si sides between the political and the personal, and the personal is political. Mm -hmm. And it's just like very aspirational to think about leaders really understanding that. And at a time when it was such a radical thought, like, and and to be, and to, to see it in that, um, I, I'm just always surprised anew by Washington's just like vision and the founding father's vision. And are we the the sort of, um, you know, uh, worthy recipients <laughs> of, of moving forward that vision, making sure that it that it lasts? Oh, thank you. Thank no, you. I mean, thank you. The I mean, in a way, your your comment makes me think and sadly, in, I mean, i appreciate it but it's also somewhat sad right that makes me wonder uh not uh well so the first thought sorry bumbling the words that to what extent is Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton precisely also some kind of a work that that aims to achieve this goal of sitting us under our vine and fig tree in America today um and if there is something to that right um to what extent is it is is he trying to achieve that more than say our own politicians in a lot of in a lot of ways right uh, precisely today, um, and and I think that there's also I mean, it's it's worth mentioning right that that there's critique of of his vision um, from from certain uh, quarters as well for for precisely doing that for being a work that tries to bring people into the American. Uh, vision, right, and in that sense, is somewhat similar to Washington. Um, by those who want to, you know, uh, curse the American vision, right, or claim, right, like to say that actually, no, that's not something that we want to be. Those are not vines and fig trees that we want to be under, right. And so, um, I think that that the the work itself is interesting and in how it tries to how it how it believes in that in America in that in that as 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 some as you know, a polity that can actually achieve achieve that in some sense. Thank you. Um, there was a question from Jenny that came in, in the chat. Was there general discussion, response, or recognition to his views by his con uh, contemporaries? Contemporaries, I'm contemporaries guessing. probably, supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... I mean, well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, in, in the in the basic sense, right? The, like everything that Washington did was, you know, discussed and responded to and recognized because he was was he, he was Washington. 
But I mean, maybe I'll read into the question a little bit, right? And um, and say that Washington's position here, right, is not the only position, especially about the the role of religion in American life that um, the found that was held by the founders, right? So um, I I actually I'm I'm I'll be honest, I'm particularly uh, I guess. I like it. I think I I do think that there's something real realistic about recognizing that religion is a part of uh is, is it can be a meaningful part of uh human life and can bring about some of the things that we want to see in citizens better than if we tried to bring those about in in the general population without religion, right? And so I think that if if we that if when one from again this is this is from a purely uh, political perspective, if one wants to achieve citizens sort of worthy of, of Republican life, that religion can be a, a way of uh, of achieving that and that it would be foolish to throw away. Um, but different people, uh, others disagreed, right? Jefferson was definitely more anti-clerical. Um, uh, Madison famously, right, was did not think that the United States should be involved in supporting religion uh, to the extent that Washington seemed that he was willing. So there were there were debates about uh, about these issues that were, that were alive then and and you know are still alive today. Thank you. Um, hi, Aglaia, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm just really dizzy today, so sorry. Um, there's um something that um I'm kind of wondering about here though is that um like and I'm not sure how far along you are with this um research and everything like that. So if you've addressed this, I'm really sorry, but um, I'm thinking about um, the impact that the first great awakening had on creating the American revolution. A lot of the time that people, um, well, I shouldn't say exaggerate, but they stress this, you know, the founding fathers and they're listening to, you know, people like John Locke and this rationalism and everything like that. But the first great awakening also inspired people, even though it's a bunch of like, you know, it's a bunch of nobodies out in the middle of nowhere, having their own personal religious experiences. So I don't know if you've already addressed that aspect or not, though, but I just wanted to throw that out there if you in case. Thank you. That's no, it's it's so important. And it's it's uh, as, as I think you you know rightly have sent it's um, it's a part it's a part of the story that I'm aware of. It's not a part that I've done enough with but i can mention one thing in that context because i do think it's interesting right is that um charles chauncey who i who i quote right who i think has this just does this wonderful job at tweaking uh the verse to make it to put it into the transitive right um he was notable for being one of the most antagonistic uh um ministers um against the the great awakening um, the first great awakening. And so um, it is interesting to think about um, the the political thought of of both sides and how those how how um, both the more rational religion and the and the enthusiasm can ultimately contribute right to uh, these issues. Um, I do I, I think that Washington, um, but again, this is I'm, I, I, Washington falls more in line with the, with the Chauncey uh, view, right? But but you're absolutely right to think take, to say that mm -hmm. the Great Awakening has to be mm -hmm. uh, taken into the pro project. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to ask it. Do you believe Please. that theistic rationalists then more of a middle ground? I'm sorry. 
do you um, buy into the whole idea that George Washington is more theistic rationalist and that would make him kind of a middle ground between the stark deist of the founding right. fathers and the great awakening? Right. So, you know, to be honest, I, I you know, as I, I think I mentioned, as I mentioned, I kind of want to bracket that debate as to what he was. Right. And I'm, and I'm not saying that I just don't know, and I certainly don't know better than the than the people who have been arguing uh, these views, right? Um, and and I'm you know I'm familiar with the one you're referring to as in saying that he's not a pure deist. Um, but in a way, I'm more I'm interested in what he's how he's operating as a political leader, right? Um, rather than necessarily what his own views were. Um, and I think I, I think that that's actually an interesting way to take it because it does it helps us to understand what um, you know what politi- what what statesmen a better word for it right um, what their responsibilities are uh, in a way regardless of their own personal uh, beliefs. Hi, Rabbi Simon. Hi, Barbara. This is fabulous. Thank you so much. So interesting. Um, so so with the idea of religion and morality both being required. Um, and I did a quick Google search, uh, not being much of a scholar on any of this, that um, uh, John Adams uh, said that you can't have democracy without both religion and morality. So given the drop in religion, or at least religious affiliation, um, what what do you think the impact is on where we are now and where we're going? Well, okay. Um, I'm definitely not qualified to answer. I mean, I can have, yeah, I have right. you're probably more qualified, I'm guessing, than, than I am. I guess I'll answer with, again, and this is me just putting myself out there for, you know, sort of honest, personal, right? One, one should never do, certainly not when it's being uh, recorded, right? Um, I mentioned earlier that I've become interested in uh, the early modern period and, um, I, I, you know, I, there are a whole bunch of caveats that I that I, I feel like I need to make because once I say this, what I'm about to say, right, I know I, I can be pounced on from so many different directions, but um, all of those caveats, right, accepting them, I think that there's a kind of way that one sees people thinking about politics and political life and uh, civic duty um, in in this period that's healthy, right. Obviously, there there are huge there are huge problems, right? But as a corrective, I mean, in a way, even just like I'm not saying like one should go entirely back to that, right? Like, but if you know, we today, I think we have a tendency much more. I, I try to think about this, right? We 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 just don't we don't speak in the same terms. We tend we have a tendency maybe to talk more about structural inequalities um, and 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 other types of things. And it's not that those don't exist at all. I don't want to be taken to be suggesting that. But I do think that there's a kind of uh, health in uh, the kind in the in the kinds of political discourse that one sees at this time. And and actually among the those who of a range of different religious persuasions. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not answering your question, right? But I guess I am I'm, I am in the sense that, yeah, I think maybe we would be better off, right? If uh, there was it was more of a larger part. Like I'm look, but I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to, I, I, I'm it, not going to say oh, that. Having, I'd love to hear what you have to say. No, having a minute or two, right. Isn't, isn't fair, but I think that it's just really interesting because it's, it's not a religion. Right. And you brought that forward. 
and and I thought this percentage of letters to Jews was pretty impressive um, within that mm-hmm. time frame. But but I just think it's it's really interesting because it seems that that's really a threat to democracy. So so um, the less churched, so to speak, people are. So I just thank you. Really got yeah. me. Thinking. I appreciate. Yeah. It. No. Interesting. By the way, just on the on, it's it is very interesting to see how Judea, how Judaism is included very in some in, at this period in certain ways as one of the denominations. And that um, right famous. I, some of you might know right famously when when uh, King's College was re uh, established as as Columbia College. Um, the board of of uh, it's not the trustees or something like this, right? Um, by 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 a rule, there had to be a representative from each one of the major uh, denominations in New York City on the board of uh, trustees. It was called something Regents or something. Um, and so uh, the Hazen from the Shul from uh, Seishas was was on the first board board of Columbia because uh, Judaism was Ju- was considered one of the major denominations in New York. So that, like, anyway, sort of interesting. Uh, Judy, I saw your hand was up. Did you still want to say something before we wrap up? I was just wondering whether there was any communication from any of the native tribes to Washington mm-hmm. and a similar communication back from him, because obviously these are all people that he considered denominations of 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 abrahamic white religions yeah that's a great question i am just ignorant so i i would love to i would love to know more about that and i just don't know i'm sorry i was just curious (laughs) no it's a great question and thank you for it because i will look into it myself now this was great thank you thank you Thank you so much, Dr. Tugendhaft. It was a great presentation, um, and thank you all for joining us. Our next class will be uh, next Thursday on July 13th, How the Jewish Awakening May Transform American Religion with Rabbi Joshua Stanton. That'll be at 1 p.m. Pacific, so we hope you can join us for that as well. And thanks again for being here, and have a great rest of your day, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.